Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Jose Alot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. Before introducing our topic and guests today, I would ask that if you enjoy our podcasts and would like to support them, as well as support the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, to please go to our website, NCB Center, and click on the red donate button. Chemical abortion, and in particular the drug mifepristone, is front and center in the abortion debate. Chemical abortion is now more prevalent than surgical abortion, and it is widely believed to be the future of the abortion industry. There are numerous medical and moral concerns with chemical abortion, but there are also important legal issues at play. In April 2023, there was a flurry of legal action on chemical abortion that went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And as we record this interview in early May of 2023, the issues are far from being resolved. Joining me to explain the legal maneuverings is attorney and law professor Elizabeth Kirk. Elizabeth is director of the Center for Law and the Human Person at the Columbus School of Law at the Catholic University of America, where she researches and teaches in the area of family law. Elizabeth Kirk, welcome to Bioethics On Air. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you here. You are now, Elizabeth, you're a new guest on our podcast. And our listeners know that whenever we have a new guest on our podcast, we like to learn a little bit about um, that person. So I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a bit about your background, specifically your education, work experience, leading up to your work um, with the Columbus School of Law. Sure. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't start with my primary role, which is uh, at home. My husband and I uh, are blessed to have four children. Uh, they're all still at home, so we're in a very busy stage <laughs> of their formation and their um, activities and, and that sort of thing. So um, that keeps me very busy. But professionally, I've had a bit of an eclectic path. So as you noted, right now I serve as the director of the Center for Law and the Human Person at the Columbus School of Law at Catholic University in Washington. Uh, I also teach in the area of family law and juvenile law uh, at uh, the law school. Uh, some of my prior positions include, so immediately before coming to Washington, I served as director of the Institute for Faith and Culture, uh, which was at the St. Lawrence Catholic, Cam Catholic Campus Center at the University of Kansas. So I ran an academic formation program for students attending the University of Kansas. Um, prior to that, I was associate director of the Notre Dame Center for Ethics and Culture uh, under its first director, David Solomon. So that center is an interdisciplinary center. Uh, many of your listeners may be familiar with its work. It's currently directed um, by Carter Sneed. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, I, you know, I practiced law. I clerked for a, a federal appellate court judge on the Seventh Circuit. Uh, so I have a kind of, uh, I took about eight years out to stay at home when our children were very young. Uh, so I have a, a pretty eclectic path, but in both law and, and in higher education. In terms of my education, I received my bachelor's degree from in English literature from the University of Missouri. Uh, I'm from Kansas City. I studied, I did my thesis on Jane Austen there. Um, and then I, I attended Notre Dame for law school. And I've also done uh, graduate studies towards a master's in theology uh, taking courses at both Notre Dame and, and Ave Maria University. Very good. 
You'll have to, uh, you and my wife will have to sit down someday because she loves Jane Austen. She was an undergraduate oh. English major as well, too. So, yeah, no, it's it's very rich. Um, yeah, <laughs> we'll so. get the two of you together. Anyway, so so That'd be great. So, um, as you said, you are the director of the Center mm -hmm. for Law and the Human Person at the Columbus School of Law at CUA. What are your responsibilities in this role? And the staple question that I've come to ask on the podcast is, what does a typical day look like for you? So, well, the mission of the center uh, is to serve as the law school's, you know, a, a central resource for thinking about how to connect um, the Catholic mission of the law school, uh, specifically the Catholic intellectual tradition, to the study and teaching and practice of law. So our activities at the center uh, kind of run the gamut from supporting scholarly research to hosting conventional academic lectures uh, to providing fellowship opportunities for students. Uh, so I would say that my typical day involves some combination of planning and executing the programming for the Center for Law and the Human Person, uh, preparing for teaching my courses, mentoring students, um, also working on my own research. Uh, you know, I'm, my own research interests relate to the family, uh, and I have a special interest in adoption law and policy. So my, my, I don't really have a typical day. It's usually some combination of, of, of those activities. I also, uh, I didn't mention this in my uh, activities, but I also serve as an associate scholar at the Charlotte Lozier Institute, mm -hmm. uh, which is a research organization to advise and lead the pro-life movement. And so I've written legal primers for them, helped write amicus briefs, provided legislative testimony, um, relating to life issues. And so oftentimes uh, my day will include some project that I'm working on for them as well. Yeah. Charlotte Lozier is a great Also group. laundry, driving kids <laughs> to soccer practice, trying to figure out why they need to eat dinner every night, you know, yeah, that sort of thing. So that, that sort of stuff. Yeah. Great. All right. So let's get into the, the case in question. So it's uh, Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine et al. Uh, versus the Food and Drug Administration or the FDA. And I have to tell you, Elizabeth, when this all hit, so to speak. My daughter and I were actually overseas. We we're in Europe and my phone was just like blowing up with, and I, I couldn't keep it straight. I'm like, what in the world is going on? This, that, and everything else. And I said, you know, immediately I said, we need to do a podcast on this. So that's kind of the ba the background for it. So let's kind of run through this case and get, get the basics uh, so people understand what's going on. And by the way, the uh, Alliance Defending Freedom case page, I'm going to link that to the show notes so people can look at that as well too. But Elizabeth, can you tell us just starting off, who brought this lawsuit and why'd they bring it? Yeah. Well, before I answer that, I just kind of want to acknowledge up front, um, as you, as you suggested, that this is a, a pretty complicated procedural case. Um, and much of what we see in the media doesn't really reflect the actual legal technicalities okay. of what's going on. To give you an example, you know, my mom wrote to me and said, the Supreme Court said the abortion pill is safe. And, right. You know, of course, they didn't say that at all. Right. right. So um, yep. I just want to acknowledge up front that like no court has fully addressed the underlying merits of the plaintiff's claims here. Uh, and that it, it's, it's a pretty technical case. Okay. Um, so who brought the lawsuit? Uh, four healthcare organizations, including the named Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine, uh, and then also four individual doctors are suing the FDA uh, for illegally approving the chemical abortion pill, Mifepristone. 
uh, and failing to protect consumers. Uh, and then, so it's it's this alliance of um, organizations and individual doctors suing the FDA, and then Danco Laboratories, which is the manufacturer of methylpristone, um, has intervened and is now also a party to the lawsuit. Interesting. And I just, um, some of the names, I, I just, I, I think some of our listeners would know. So there's the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine, also the American Association for Pro-Life Obstetrics, Obstetricians and Gynecologists. It's a great group. The American College of Pediatricians, great group. And also I, I noticed uh, George Delgado's name on it, the uh, the abortion pill reversal, the, the founder of abortion pill reversal. So there's some very, very good organizations and people involved with this case. So Elizabeth, what did the plaintiffs argue about the FDA's process for approving mifepristone. This was one element, one of the big elements of the case. What, what did they argue? So the, the kind of layman's way of describing their overall argument is that the FDA has put politics above women's health and safety, right? That the FDA is, their, their mandate from Congress is to protect the health and safety of, of patients and mm-hmm. those who consume drugs. And that um, with respect to the abortion pill, FDA put politics above above that health and safety mandate, uh, going all the way back to its initial approval of the drug in 2000. So that's the general claim. Uh, the legalese uh, is, is a bit more complicated. So when courts review agency actions like the FDA, they're supposed they're only supposed to, they're supposed to give a lot of deference to agency action. And they're only supposed to overturn an agency's action if the action is unlawful or if the agency has acted, the standard is called arbitrary and capricious. Mm -hmm. So in this case, with respect to the approval of the drug back in 2000, the plaintiffs are arguing that the FDA's actions were both unlawful and arbitrary and capricious in a number of ways. So for example, they say that when the FDA approved the drug, they did so under a, a part of the, of the statute or the regulations called subpart H, uh, which is really meant for accelerated approvals of drugs that are ordered towards serious life-threatening illnesses and that you know this drug provides a serious benefit that right. no other um, treatment does. Well, you know, the plaintiffs point out that pregnancy is not a life-threatening illness, right? Um, It's not an illness at all, of course. It's a natural function of a healthy human body. Um, And they also argue that the chemical abortion pills are not, you know, they don't provide a meaningful therapeutic benefit. So that's one way in which the initial approval, they say, was unlawful. They also uh, argue that the studies that the the FDA's approval was um, arbitrary and capricious because the studies the FDA used uh, to demonstrate the drug safety um, don't uh, don't match the conditions under which they allowed the drug to be prescribed in the real world. So in other words, you know, we can't, any conclusions we can draw about the safety of the drug, right, under the conditions prescribed um, are, are inadequate. Uh, because the studies weren't done under those conditions. Uh, and so the, those are some of the arguments with respect to the initial approval going back to 2000. Interesting. Just one example of that, and, and, I'm, mm-hmm. and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, is, is, was one example of those, the, um, the FDA maybe later on allowing mifepristone to be used for adolescent girls 
and the, and the argument or the plaintiff's argument was that this was never tested on, you know, for, for adolescents. Uh, and so this was, this would be an example of that arbitrary and capricious. Am, am I correct on that? That's right. That's right. Okay. One of the ways in which they say the studies are inadequate is that they didn't study uh, the the drug on, on women under 18. Uh, okay. They also didn't study the emotional, psychological, you know, impacts of the drug. So there's a there's a number of ways in which the there's plaintiffs argue the studies themselves are inadequate. And then the, the kind of second argument with respect to the studies is that to the extent they they did study anything, um, they did so under conditions or safeguards like requiring an ultrasound that they didn't require when the drug was actually prescribed. Got it. All right. Very good. All right. So with that in mind, what did the plaintiffs argue about the FDA eliminating safeguards with regard to mifepristone? Right. So the first set of claims that we just discussed related to the initial approval in 2000, Mm -hmm. but here we're talking about changes that the FDA made to the drug's labeling or conditions of use once it was on the market. Uh, So even though those initial approvals, the plaintiffs argue, were inadequate in various ways, um, they still did include some safeguards, like a limitation that only physicians could prescribe the pill, uh, requiring three in-person office visits, uh, requiring all adverse events to be reported Mm -hmm. so that you could track the safety profile of the drug. Uh, But in 2016, the FDA approved significant changes, removing even those meager safeguards. So they eliminated two of the three in-person visits. Um, They allowed non-physicians to prescribe, and they eliminated the requirement to uh, report non-fatal adverse events. So the plaintiffs argue that by removing those safeguards, you know, which at least at one point were deemed minimally necessary to safeguard um, or to mitigate the risks of the drug, uh, that those changes were also made without adequate studies and and under conditions that don't match the use uh, in the real world. Uh, And it's especially disturbing, I think, that the FDA removed this reporting requirement of non-fatal adverse events at the same time that it removed these minimal safeguards that it that it had in place. So so now, you know, there's no way of knowing of whether the removal of those safeguards, you know, how many women are, are being truly harmed the because the now the the reporting system, right, is inherently inaccurate. Right. Another change uh, that the plaintiffs argue was arbitrary and capricious and unlawful is that in 2021, during the COVID pandemic, the FDA, uh, you know, removed that one last in-person visit requirement and allowed uh, the drug to be dispersed through the mail. Uh, And that was later made permanent. And so uh, the plaintiffs point out that the FDA even admitted uh, that it's the studies it was relying on to go completely to telemedicine, uh, that those studies weren't adequate to to establish safety of a a purely mail order uh, model uh, but nevertheless, they went ahead and improved it. So the so the plaintiffs are also arguing that these post two thousand changes uh, are similarly unlawful and arbitrary and capricious. Yeah, I just want to let listeners know that we did a podcast uh, a while back with 
Charlotte Lozier and talked about these these safeguards and, and what they are and, and a lot more detail. I'm gonna I'm gonna link that podcast in the show notes as well too, so you can you can listen um, to that. And they basically said, Elizabeth, what 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 you said, um, and, and you know now we're dealing with the the legal fallout from those. Um, I, I've got a, a question that I'm kind of confused about, and I'm, again, I'm not a lawyer, so um, that's why you're here. What are the the citizen petitions? that the FDA rejected? Um, and, and legally, why are they significant for, for this case? Sure. Well, so the FDA's regulations require a potential litigant to go to it. It's called exhausting your administrative remedies. So, okay. you know, to, to avoid unnecessary litigation, um, to kind of be, um, uh, efficient, you know, the potential litigants are encouraged to first try to resolve things within the agency. Okay. And so a citizen's petition is a kind of fairly common uh, example of this requirement that administrative remedies be exhausted before a lawsuit is filed. And so these petitions ask the agency to either do something or refrain from doing something. They're often, you know, filed by, um, uh, persons who have a special expertise or something that they want the agency to consider. And so in 2002, some of the plaintiffs in this very case filed a citizen position, petition, petition with the FDA challenging its initial approval of the drug. Uh, and then they did so again after the 2016 uh, changes were made. And one of the reasons it's, it's legally significant in this case is because the defendants, the FDA and Danco, are arguing that the plaintiffs didn't exhaust their remedies, right? Or that they waited too long to bring this lawsuit. Well, the the funny part about that is that, so as I mentioned, the plaintiffs filed this citizen's petition in 2002. The FDA didn't respond to that for 16 years. (laughs) So, and then, and then they didn't, respond to the, to the later one for, I think it was two years or something like that. So, um, you know, these significant delays, I mean, 16 years is, is an extreme, obviously, uh, example, uh, you know, plays into some of the procedural arguments that are being made in the case that the plaintiffs are barred by time. It's called a statute of limitations, which right. bars untimely claims. Uh, and, and, you know, why did the plaintiffs wait over 20 years to bring these lawsuits? Well, in part, it's because, you know, as the district court pointed out, the FDA was stonewalling them for almost the the entirety of those two decades. Got it. Is there anything else relevant that our listeners need to know about this case before moving forward? Yeah. I mean, as I mentioned, it's a pretty technical case and there's lots of different strands I think that one could look at, but I think uh, aside from the safe, the arguments re- regarding the safety of the drugs, I think another argument that the plaintiffs have made that hasn't been fully addressed by the courts is that the FDA's authorization of these this mail order distribution uh, without requiring any in-person visits uh, violates the federal Comstock laws. Okay. The Comstock laws prohibit the mailing of anything um, intended for producing an abortion. And so uh, that argument, I think, is one uh, that will need to be addressed. And it's, it's one in which, you know, the, the authority of the FDA uh, um, comes up against the authority of Congress, right? Um, it also flouts the laws of many states. Um, 
that have have restrictions on uh, telemedicine abortions. So the way the plaintiffs put it in their brief is that the FDA has imposed a mail order elective abortion policy on the whole country. And, you know, can an agency exert that kind of authority vis-a-vis Congress and all of the states uh, just by, you know, a a regulatory policy? That's, I think, an interesting question. Uh, The defendants have, you know, all sorts of arguments um, in response uh, to to the plaintiff's concerns. Uh, Most of them are procedural in nature, not about the underlying substance and safety of the drugs. Um, But one of the arguments that they continually make is this, you know, we should defer to the agencies, that we should follow the science, that the FDA is the one um, with the with the expertise. And, you know, this follow the science, rely on the experts argument is one we've heard in a number of contexts, oh, yes. you know, especially in the last few years. And the plaintiffs would say that we shouldn't defer to their expertise uh, when they don't rely on reasoned decision making and fail to follow the law. Yeah. Oh, that's excellent. Thank you. That very, very good. Yeah. All right. So um, before we get into where, you know, kind of the, the ins and outs of what happened in the court, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions about um, amicus briefs and, and some, some things that you've written about the case. So um, the Catholic Healthcare Leadership Alliance, the CHCLA, of which the NCBC is a member, along with um, Catholic Benefits Association, Catholic Bar Association, Christ Medicus, and others, um, these organizations, among others, signed an amicus brief in this case, and, and there's subsequently this brief um, was also submitted, I believe, to the Supreme Court that focused on informed consent. And I, I know you're, um, I know you're aware of this brief, and I was wondering if, if you could tell us briefly what did this amicus brief argue? Sure. Well, I'll, I'll make a quick plug for the Catholic Bar Association, of which I'm a member, uh, and as you <laughs> mentioned, is one of the signatories to the amicus brief. Uh, the Catholic Bar Association is, is a wonderful uh, group uh, of, of uh, Catholic attorneys um, trying to live out their faith in the in the profession of law. Um, so for your non-legal listeners, you know, amicus briefs, uh, amicus curiae means friend of the court. Uh, and these are opportunities for for organizations or persons that are not parties, you know, official litigants, parties to the lawsuit, to share with the court a particular perspective or expertise that they think would be helpful to the court in coming it, to its decision. So in this brief, NCBC, the CBA and others uh, offer this unique angle, which is that the FDA's approval of this drug and its subsequent changes violate the fundamental principle of informed consent. And that principle, which is meant to protect both patients and physicians, right, and healthcare providers, uh, is the principle that a patient's decision, whether to undergo treatment or to forego treatment, mm-hmm. uh, must be based on adequate disclosure of the diagnosis. You know, why do, why do I need this treatment? Uh, a description of the proposed treatment itself, uh, an adequate understanding of its benefits, of its risks and your alternatives to that treatment. And then on top of that, the pain, having been duly informed, right, a patient has to have the capacity and the freedom uh, from coercion to make a truly voluntary decision. So NCBC and the other amici, they argue that because the FDA's approval was based on these flawed studies and studies that contain safeguards that were never actually used when prescribing the drugs, that it's impossible for physicians to communicate and for patients to understand 
the true risks of the drug under the pres- you know conditions prescribed. Uh, and they just go through all of the different arguments that the plaintiffs made and connect those to the the reality that that pa- patients and physicians are are not truly informed as to the nature uh, of the risk. You can't you can't say the drug is safe, right? When, for example, there's no requirement to report adverse, adverse events effects, like exactly. hemorrhaging yep. or allergic re- reactions right. and that sort of thing. Um, they also make the argument with respect to the removal of any in person visits that it's impossible under this uh, regimen for a woman to know her unique personal risks, right? So it's one thing to say, like, is this drug in general safe or dangerous? But is it safe or dangerous for me, right? Um, And because the FDA has removed any of these requirements for a doctor to actually see a woman, (laughs) um, he he can't determine, right, whether she has an IUD inserted or whether she uh, has an ectopic pregnancy uh, or whether she uh, is RH positive or negative, which will affect her future fertility or any other contraindications that she might have to the drug. So without that in-person care, the physician can't adequately determine her unique risk and therefore can't receive informed consent from her. And then the final way in which informed consent is implicated here is with respect to the voluntariness. So that in-person requirement allows the physician the opportunity, at least, to discern whether the woman is being coerced. And we know, right. um, I mean, yep. you know, Planned Parenthood admits that reproductive coercion is, is a, you know, a serious concern, and especially in the abortion context. And so uh, not allow, not requiring a doctor to visit in person with the woman uh, makes it difficult to determine whether she's voluntarily consenting to this drug. Yeah. Oh, yeah. All sorts of issues with conform, informed consent going on here. Could talk about that all day, but but we can't. We won't. We're going to move on. Um, Elizabeth, on, on May 1st of this year, our Sunday visitor uh, published an article that you wrote that's titled, Buyer Beware, Women's Safety is a Key Oversight in the Abortion Debate. And I'm, I'm going to link this in the show notes as well, too. I think you've already discussed you know, a lot of the, the, the safety issues involved with um, involved here. But why did you write this article? So to be honest, I was really frustrated with the inability of people on either side of the abortion divide to speak to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, the hope of Dobbs, uh, and you know, we could sort of talk about maybe the limitations of Dobbs in some other contexts, but the hope of Dobbs was by returning the question of abortion to the American people, that it was in some sense a vote of confidence in, in public discourse and our ability to kind of work <laughs> through some of these things. And of course, it's not working too well right now. <laughs> it's not working too well. And that's that was frustrating to me. Um, you know, it's, it's true, of course, that pro-life people oppose the chemical abortion pill because it destroys a human life, right? The, the unborn child. And we, we have, we, of course, we would admit that. But we also oppose it because it's harmful to women. And that's what mm-hmm. this lawsuit is about. And I think that latter point is something that could be common ground for those even who have a different position than we do about abortion if they approach it with intellectual honesty. I've been reading a book, a really powerful book called RU486, which is a hard critical look at this abortion pill regime um, written by feminist supporters of abortion. Uh, and they they say in this book that uh, they became convinced that the drug was 
um, not safe for women. And then in fact, they thought it might become the new DIY backyard abortion 21st century style. So, so I wrote about this because I, I was frustrated with the inability of, of pro abortion, largely by and large pro abortion persons to consider, to be open to the fact that this might be harmful for women. Last summer, after the Dobbs decision, many of us who were, you know, welcoming the opportunity to, to pass more protective laws, pro-life laws, uh, you know, spent much of our time responding to these spurious arguments that these laws meant that women who are experiencing miscarriages or ectopic pregnancies uh, would be discouraged from receiving life-saving care or even that they might be subject to criminal prosecution. And so I just, in this article, kind of wanted to point out the irony of the fact that last summer pro-abortion supporters were so concerned about women experiencing ectopic pregnancies. And yet this year, um, they're sort of reflexively supporting a drug uh, in which women are not even screened for ectopic pregnancies. And, you know, so just to urge people of goodwill to be open to the arguments that the plaintiffs are making, because if they're true, then people, regardless of their position on abortion, ought to be concerned about the safety of women. Yeah, very, very well stated. All right, so let's get let's get back to the case uh, itself. So mm-hmm. the the case was originally heard in U.S. District Court in Amarillo, Texas, and Judge Matthew and I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but I'm going to say Kismeric. Does that sound? Do you know? I'm going to go with that too. Okay. <laughs> so so Judge Kismeric, if we're butchering your name, we we apologize, but um, right. but that's kind of where we're going. But anyway. So it was heard in his court. So, Elizabeth, a couple of questions about this case. And by the way, his um, his uh, decision came out on Good Friday, on April seventh, which is kind of interesting in itself. But what did first of all, what did uh, Judge Kismeric rule regarding the FDA's approval of Mifepristone, and why did he rule as he did? Sure. Well, so some of the judge's opinion had to do with these some of these procedural questions, okay. like. Do the plaintiffs have standing? That right. is, are, okay. have they been injured in some way that they can you know, bring a lawsuit? Or related to the citizen's petition, you know, did they exhaust their administrative okay. remedies, mm-hmm. the statute of limitations, et cetera? Um, in terms of the plaintiff's substantive claims, uh, they concluded, and again, this is a preliminary stage, so this isn't a full-blown trial on the merits of the case, but the judge concluded that the plaintiffs had demonstrated they were likely to succeed on their claim that the FDA had exceeded its authority by approving Mifepristone in 2000, um, and you know, on the basis that it that it uh, did so under this subpart H, which was inappropriate, you know, because pregnancy is not an illness, uh, that they didn't follow their own standards in the expedited approval, uh, that they acted arbitrarily and capriciously because of the limitations of the studies and the fact that the study conditions of the study don't match. Uh, the the conditions under which the drug was actually prescribed. So he concluded with respect to the 2000 approval that the plaintiffs had demonstrated they were likely to succeed on, on those claims. Okay. What did he rule regarding the FDA's elimination of safeguards, which you, which you spoke about? Um, and why did he rule as he did? Yeah. So similarly, he went through each of the, you know, the claims of the, of the plaintiffs that we already described with respect to the elimination of those safeguards in 2016, the um, granting of the the generic drug, uh, the approval of the generic drug, 
the in- removal of any in-person requirements, all of those he went through and, and similarly uh, agreed that the plaintiffs had demonstrated they were likely to succeed uh, on those claims, uh, as well as uh, um, determining that the FDA's approval of the mail distribution uh, violated the Comstock Act. So with respect to all of the plaintiffs' claims, uh, Judge Kaczmarek concluded they were likely to succeed uh, on the merits, and therefore uh, he stayed or uh, suspended uh, the effective date of the FDA's 2000 approval and then all subsequent FDA actions after that. So that was the the, the holding is, is basically he suspended their approval of the drug. Right. And that, which is really important. But I do, I do want to clarify something because, and this is confusing mm-hmm. to me, this wasn't a trial per se. This was, right. this was more hearings, correct? That's right. That's right. Hearings, okay. pleadings, you know, um, affidavits, that sort of thing. Um, so this is, this is um, all related to a request for a, a, a temporary relief pending a full trial, uh, okay. right? So the, the plaintiffs are asking, can you, you know, women are being harmed, right? right? This is the kind of layman's way of putting it. Women are being harmed right now. Um, we think we're likely to succeed if we go to trial. Can you hit pause or suspend the this drug while we go through the trial, right? And Judge Kazmarek agreed. There's all these legal standards right. for when preliminary relief is, is appropriate. Judge Kazmarek agreed that preliminary relief was appropriate. Uh, pending the the fuller resolution of the the merits of the claims got it anything else any other issues of note that we should know about judge kaczmarek's uh ruling in this case before moving on i think that canvases the arguments i mean i think the the other kind of procedural thing to note is that he when he suspended the approval he you know, stayed his stay. (laughs) You can use the word stay in many ways here. He, um, the, he gave a seven day window for that to take effect, knowing of course that the parties, you know, that the FDA was going to appeal this immediately to the, to the next level, the, the fifth circuit appellate court. Uh, and so his stay, uh, of the entire drug regimen, um, did not go into effect immediately on good Friday, but rather was, uh, he gave a seven day window for an appeal. Which did happen, but we'll get to right. that in a second. So the same yeah. day as Judge Kaczmarek's ruling, another U.S. District Court, um, uh, excuse me, another District Court judge named Thomas Rice out in Washington State, came to a very different conclusion. And and what did he rule? So this is kind of interesting, and it's a little like inside baseball, you know, for lawyers, I think. But Judge Rice granted a preliminary injunction. Uh, so again, a kind of temporary relief in a case that was brought by 17 states in, in Washington, D.C., uh, so 17 states led by Democratic governors, uh, in which they claimed that the FDA has actually imposed unreasonable restrictions, restrictions on mifepristone and that it should be even more widely available. Right. So the, the direct opposite of the argument that the plaintiffs are making here, that um, that the drug is, is unsafe under the, the conditions prescribed. And so in that case. Judge Rice ordered the FDA um, to maintain the availability of mifepristone and prohibited them from altering the status quo in any way in those plaintiff states, in those 18 jurisdictions. And it's a bit of an odd case because one can't really imagine that those states were genuinely concerned that the FDA was going to limit the availability of mifepristone, right? 
Um, so even though the ruling, right, FDA, you can't change anything, um, was technically adverse to the FDA, uh, they didn't appeal it, right? And they're not they're not resisting this um, this uh, uh, outcome. And so Justice Alito, I mean, I know we're getting a little ahead, but up to the Supreme Court, but Justice Alito even kind of pointed this out. Um, because he said that the FDA was sort of engaging in, he called it the practice of leveraging district court injunctions as a basis for achieving a desired policy. So basically the FDA sort of used their quote loss in the Washington district court case um, to argue that, you know, vis-a-vis the Texas district court ruling that regulatory chaos was going to ensue if the Supreme Court didn't step in. So uh, again, it's a little bit of an inside baseball procedural, um, you know, strategizing and that sort of thing on the part of lawyers. All right. So let's, let's go back to the original uh, ruling from Judge Kaczmarek's court. Sure. And he, he stayed his own ruling for seven days for, to allow the government to appeal, which they did. Mm-hmm. So um, it went to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. And they came out with a ruling. And I believe this was a three-judge panel. It wasn't the whole court that was that decided this. But on April 12th, they came out with a ruling. So Elizabeth, let's kind of go through the, the issues as we, as we did with Judge Kaczmarek. So what did the three-judge panel of the Fifth Circuit rule regarding the FDA's approval process for Mifepristone? So this panel was an emergency panel to, to discern, you know, to determine whether or not um, they should pause Judge Kaczmarek's um, ruling uh, until it, the appellate court, could more fully hear the appeal. Okay. So we're, we're talking about like appeals within appeals, uh, <laughs> basically. Um, and so that, that emergency Fifth Circuit panel uh, kept in place Judge Kaczmarek's ruling with respect to the 2016 and following changes. Uh, but they stayed the district court's ruling with respect to the 2000 approval, okay. uh, s- stating that it was likely barred by the statute of limitations. Um, now, I just want to point out again, because for, for listeners like my mom who thought, you know, that meant that the drug was safe or something like that, um, that such a ruling, right, even if it stands up based on statute of limitations, doesn't tell us anything about the safety of the drug. It just says it's you're barred by, you know, time uh, from bringing bringing this. It doesn't tell us whether the FDA followed the law or not, or is, you know, concerned about women's safety and that sort of thing. It's just about whether time has passed. So what did the Fifth Circuit panel rule regarding the FDA's elimination of mifepristone safeguards? Right. So it, it refused to to hit pause on the district court's ruling with respect to the 2016 plus modifications and allowed that to remain in place. So um, they concluded that, uh, you know, these um, uh, these claims that the plaintiffs had made regarding, you know, the um, the uh, study, the inadequacies of the studies and and, uh, the ways in which the conditions of study don't match the real world. Uh, you know, that, that those were sufficient uh, to, to justify upholding um, the 2016 plus cha- post changes. Uh, but with respect to the 2001, they said it was likely barred by the, by the statute of limitations. 
um, they made this this good analogy, which I think is helpful, and I, I referred to it in my our Sunday visitor piece, which is that you know when the FDA eliminated safeguards that the studies you know based on studies that included those safeguards, it would sort of be like if if you know we did a study of the safety of an automobile with airbags and you know seatbelts. Um, but then when the car was sold to the public, it didn't include seatbelts, right? And that we would say, well, look, these, sa- these studies show that this is a safe car. And it's right. like, right, but that's, it's a different car. It doesn't have seatbelts anymore. So uh, yeah, so the, the, uh, the Fifth Circuit agreed with the plaintiff's arguments regarding uh, the FDA's actions. Okay. Any other issues of note coming out of the Fifth Circuit that we should know about? Um, it didn't. It didn't reach the Comstock Act question. Uh, again, I think just at this point, the important thing to note was this was just an emergency uh, appeal, and 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 really looking at uh, you know the the plaintiff and and defendants' claims of whether um, you know imminent harm would would ensue if if the Fifth Circuit didn't act. And so uh, this was just a very procedural, emergency, temporary decision. Got it. Okay. So um, following the Fifth Circuit. Um, the federal government appealed that. They apparently didn't get everything that they wanted from the Fifth Circuit, so they appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. And this is where some of the goofiness comes up. Where you know, and I've we've heard it too. You know, the Supreme Court said the abortion pills are okay, or Justice Alito said it's, and it, it's just not true. But what did what happened at the U.S. Supreme Court? So the so the federal government appeals there. What did the U.S. Supreme Court rule? Um, particularly on, on April 21st of, of this past year. And talk to us a little bit about what Justice uh, Justices Thomas and Alito, how they dissented, so to speak, from the rest of the court. Sure. So, okay. So Judge Kaczmarek issues a ruling staying the entire drug approval and you know modification regime. Right. Uh, so the FDA loses completely at that stage, yep. right? Um, it goes to the Fifth Circuit and the Fifth Circuit um, only keeps in place the uh, the stay with respect to the 2016 and following modifications. So the FDA um, still is unhappy, right? Because right. It, it, uh, it's lost some of, uh, right? So that it appeals, as you say, to the Supreme Court. So what the Supreme Court did was they stayed all of the district court's stay while the appeal back at the Fifth Circuit uh, is going to proceed, right? So as I mentioned, all that happened at the Fifth Circuit was this emergency panel about the stay. The the Fifth Circuit was is still was and is still going to hear the the regular appeal of Judge Kaczmarek's full order. Okay, um, that oral argument has been set for May seventeenth. So the so what the Supreme Court said is pending that appeal to the Fifth Circuit. So for the next few weeks. We're just going to stay the whole, we're going to stay all of Judge Kaczmarek's order. So for now, the drug remains on the market, full availability as it did before the lawsuit, through the mail, without the safeguards, et cetera. So many would say that the court's ruling isn't that surprising, that you know applications like this are typically made and what the courts do is maintain the status quo as it existed immediately before the lawsuit, right? So um and and that's just to to maintain the status quo pending pending the deter, you know the final determination uh, of the case, and so the so the court did that. Uh, there needed to be five votes to grant the stay, 
we know that two justices dissented because they made that public. Um, because this is what's called the shadow docket, um, which is uh, an emergency docket where there's a truncated time to review everything, et cetera, um, it's possible that there were other votes, one or two, you know, other justices who didn't vote for the stay, but they chose not to publicly make their votes known once they lost. Um, we only know that Justice Thomas dissented and that Justice Alito dissented from staying all of Judge Kazmarek's decision. Justice Thomas dissented without any opinion. So we don't know what the basis um, for his reasoning is. Justice Alito wrote briefly, and he, he made several points. I'll just kind of point out two of them. One is he noted that many people, including his colleagues on the court, but also, you know, of course, um, legal scholars, pundits, et cetera, have complained about the court's use of the shadow docket, this emergency, you know, truncated process to stay lower court decisions. Um, and, you know, that, that it's them exerting too much authority or power and et cetera. Um, and he says, gosh, it's interesting, right, that people complain about that. But but here, they're perfectly happy to issue right. a stay right. without any opinion, without enough time to hear all of the arguments. Uh, and so, you know, just kind of pointing out maybe the irony or maybe maybe some are only willing to critique the shadow docket if it serves their purposes, right? On a more substantive level, uh, well, Justice Alito mentioned this point I mentioned earlier about the the two district court, you know, the warring district court opinions and how that was likely more political in nature than authentically a, a real legal um, question. But he said um, that the defendants, FDA and Danco, hadn't shown that they were likely to suffer harm during this very short period while the Fifth Circuit was going to hear the, the fuller appeal. And that's this the harm is something that the defend, you know, that the people requesting the parties requesting the stay would have to show in order right. to get a stay. You have to show I'm, I'm being harmed by, right. by the, you know, uh, by the prior decision. And so Danco had argued, we're going to be harmed by having to pull this drug from the market to relabel it back to the pre 2016 conditions. Right. And that's going to be really difficult for us. And, and, Time, you know, expensive and all this. And Justice Alito said that he didn't think it was a real harm in part because he didn't think the FDA would actually enforce those safeguards anyway, right. uh, or even obey uh, the court's order. Of course, the administration has made, um, you know, statements gesturing in that regard that they don't, they're not planning to obey, you know, the, the court's rulings in these respects. So, uh, so Justice Alito said the defendants hadn't shown that harm that they were likely to to suffer. Okay. All right. With all of this in mind, and we mm -hmm. are, re we're recording this podcast on May 10th of 2023. What happens now? You alluded to this a little bit earlier, but can you give our listeners kind of a, where, where, where does this go now? What, what, what should we look out for? Um, and where do you think this case will, what, what do you think the ultimate result of this case will be? So the Fifth Circuit has set set its briefing schedule. Uh, some of the briefs have already been filed for its full review, not an emergency one, but its full, full review, review of all of Judge Kazmarek's order. Uh, and it will hear oral argument on May 17th, so next week. And generally, when an appellate court reviews a district court order like this, 
uh, it's highly deferential because the the district court judge is the one who heard all of the right. arguments and who looked at the evidence. And, you know, so the appellate court tends to be, uh, you know, deferential. Now, all bets are, are usually off in an abortion case, right? right. They're, they, right. So we can't say that for sure. But, um, but it's, you know, possible at least that the Fifth Circuit would affirm the district court's order in, in full. Uh, it's possible that they could um, do something like the, the emergency panel had done, which is to, to state, you know, to affirm part of what Judge Kaczmarek did and to, to overturn another part of what he did. So it's, I'm, I'm not in the predicting business, so I'm not sure <laughs> what they will do. Uh, you know, um, but I think, of course, depending on what the Fifth Circuit does do, uh, one of the parties might, you know, in, in theory, if the Fifth Circuit rules, it would then, it's a possibility that it would then be sent back to the district court for that full trial that we've talked about hasn't happened yet. Right. But depending on what the Fifth Circuit does, the case will likely be appealed back up to the Supreme yeah. Court. That was my next question. This, it sounds like this is going back to the Supreme Court, no matter what right. happens at the That's Fifth right. Circuit. Right. That's right. Uh, so we I, we may be a while off from that full trial that would really help us understand, you know, the 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 truth of the of the plaintiff's um, claims. So where where does this where would this trial happen? Would it happen back in the U.S. district judge uh, U.S. district court or at the, the that's right? The, the, so okay, all right. Yeah. Uh, stay tuned. <laughs> this is this is this is going to be a while. Um, but this is but this is an excellent, excellent explanation of, of where we are to today. So Elizabeth, thank you for joining me on Bioethics on Air. For more information on the topics discussed today and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, where you can subscribe to our newsletter, as well as our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics on Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at jzalot at ncbcenter.org. Archived editions of the podcasts are available on our website. Please hover on the Blogs and Podcast button on the main page and then click Bioethics on Air. Finally, if you enjoy our podcasts, please subscribe to them. And if you would like to support them, as well as the mission and ongoing work of the NCBC, go to our website, again, ncbcenter.org, and click on the red Donate button. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.